by way of announcement this morning. I wanted to remind you and invite you to Sunday morning prayer. Uh, we have a prayer meeting that meets at 8 in the morning here in room 4 in the bottom corner of the building over there. We're going, we just finished praying through all of the Psalms again, and we're going to pick up looking at the prayers throughout all of Scripture. So going back to Genesis and seeing the prayers that are there, if you'd like to take part in learning to pray from Scripture by learning of the prayers in Scripture, we invite you to join us for that at 8 in the morning on Sundays. Um, also, there, the Shepherds Conference is coming up in March for those who are interested in attending. Uh, those of you who are interested, you've probably already registered. Uh, if you haven't, uh, you're, you're welcome to do that if there's still some available spots. Also, if you're planning to go, please let me know. I'd like to see if there's any way that I could assist you in uh, getting there or finding a place to stay and things like that. It's a great time of fellowship for all of the men who go to that. You have to be a man, by the way. It's a shepherd's conference. Okay. Uh, we also have our Harvest Sunday giving coming up next Sunday when we make an offering in support of other missions ministries around the world, which will... Uh, be able to have the opportunity to, to give toward missions next week. I also want to mention that there is a meet and greet following this service. It is for meeting and greeting the elders that are over this church and for them to meet and greet you as well. If you're new to the church and you haven't had an opportunity to meet all of the elders, this is an opportunity for you to be able to do that we will be feeding you lunch. Uh, we had read that passage about shepherds who just fed themselves. That does not happen here. We will be <laughs> feeding you. And your kids will be able to play at the playground and everything. It's a nice time. We look forward to that. So if you want to join in on that, that'll start at 1230. So I'll give you a little time to fellowship and mingle after the service and then go to that at 1230, room four, just up the steps in that building there in the lower corner. This morning we're returning to 1 Peter. We're going to be going to chapter 5 together this morning. As some of you know, I, I turned 36 earlier this, well, last week now, which is significant to me and at this moment because I'm around the age of the Timothy to whom Paul wrote, let no one despise you for your youth. And it just so happens that today as the youngest of all of the elders here at FCF, I am preaching about elders. With that said, I sympathize with Timothy in his situation and recognize the need to pray. So let's pray as we continue in our worship. Jesus, you are the good shepherd, and I pray that you would shepherd your sheep through the shepherds which you have placed over this congregation, that you would teach us from your word what elders are, what pastors are, what shepherds are, what overseers are, that we would learn your definition for this title, that we would learn uh, 
what you have commanded the leadership of your church to be and to do. I pray that you would teach us what elders are. pray that this message would be given with the tone that expresses your heart, that it be preached in humility with a fear of you that honors you and that you would indeed feed your sheep on your word now. Amen. As we look at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1, I am going to not only teach this text, but expand on the topic of elders by considering some other passages as well. In this message, my aim is to teach what elders are. Thus, the title of the message is What Elders Are. I hope to encourage the existing elders. I want to address future elders. And for this to be a reminder to all of us of Jesus' loving shepherding care, which he, thro- he shows through elders. So let's begin with considering what elders are from 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, which reads, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. What are elders? Does this word elders refer to age or maturity? Does this text just refer to older men or is it referring to a distinct leadership office within the church? In this text, God exhorts elders through Peter. So our question is, well, how is Peter using the word elders here? The word elders here is translated from the Greek word presbyteros, which you probably know the word presbytery or presbyterian from that. This word is translated in reference to older men in 1 Timothy 5.1, where Paul writes, do not rebuke an older man, that's a presbyteros, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers. In this case, presbyteros is in reference to age, which we see that in the context, where older men are compared to younger men. The meaning of the word is determined by the usage of the word. That's an important hermeneutical principle that meaning determines usage. Now, while presbyteros is sometimes used in general terms to refer to older men, Peter's use is more specific. Instead of referencing age in the context in verse 2, if you look back at 1 Peter 5 verse 2, he refers to elders as those who shepherd the flock of God and exercise oversight. So you see he's describing what elders do. So you know what elders are by what elders do. So the words elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer are actually all synonyms. They're all talking about the same thing in the Bible. It's not like there's elders are one thing, pastors are another thing. Elders is the job title. The job description is that they pastor, shepherd, and oversee. So those words are used 
interchangeably and synonymous in scripture and in this message as well. Peter is not generally referring to age here, but he's specifically referring to a leadership office within the church, specifically to those who shepherd and oversee. The meaning of the term is determined by how it's used within the context. Peter's focus is not on age, but maturity. John Calvin, writing on this, says, the elders, by this name, he designates pastors as all those who are appointed for the government of the church, but they called them presbyters, or elders for honor's sake, not because they were all old in age, but because they were principally chosen from the aged. For old age, for the most part, has more prudence, gravity, and experience, but as sometimes gray-headedness is not wisdom, according to a Greek proverb, and as young men are found more fit, such as Timothy. Timothy was appointed as an elder over the church at Ephesus by the Apostle Paul, not because of his age, but because of his maturity. You'll likely recall in a recent sermon on spiritual gifts how God displays his grace through speaking and serving gifts within the church, but gifted leaders are also one of Jesus' gifts to the church. If you want to turn over to Ephesians 4.11 to be reminded of that, in Ephesians 4.11 we see that elders are a leadership grace gift to the church. You'll likely recall as Dave preached through Ephesians, his message on Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and Jesus giving to his church the grace gifts of elders. Ephesians 4.11 reads, And Jesus, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Jesus has given the grace gift of elders who shepherd and teach the church. And why has he done this? And we see that in verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Jesus has gifted his church with elders who shepherd and teach the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up one another through serving one another. We all have spiritual gifts which keep on giving. It's a picture to us that Jesus is a giver. Jesus loves his church, and he loves to give good gifts. And the existence of elders to shepherd and teach the church for the work of ministry is evidence of his grace and love in your life. Imagine the chaos that would ensue if Jesus didn't give elders over his church. Inevitably, somebody would try to fill the void or a whole bunch of somebodies. And everything, ministry-wise, would come to a standstill due to a lack of order. It's like a construction worker said to me once when a project we were working on came to an awkward standstill. It looks like we've got too many chiefs and not enough Indians. God has graciously gifted his church with the office of elders so that the work of the church can go on instead of being brought to a standstill. 
And Jesus isn't stingy with his gift giving. He probably noticed that elders ends with an S. Jesus' leadership gifts to the church comes in the plural. Scripture teaches that God's government is a plurality of elders who are answerable to Christ. If you turn over to Titus 1.5, and you can see that in your own copy of God's word, and Titus 1.5, as we've already seen in Peter, he exhorts the elders, but by way of an additional example, in Titus 1.5, Paul reminds Titus that he is not to appoint one elder, but to appoint elders. The text reads, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we learn from this text that God's standard for church leadership is a plurality of elders. But we also learn something about church governance from Titus 1.5 as well. Each local church is governed by local elders. It is not governed by elders from another locality. I remember one of my friends who took counseling phone calls at Grace Community Church, and he would have somebody call from another state and explain how John MacArthur was their pastor. And he would ask them, oh, do you know John? I'd say, well, not personally, but I listened to his sermons. I said, well, does he know you? Well, no, but I really like his teaching. Over time, he would say, well, do you have a Bible with you? <laughs> uh, he would have them go to some of these texts that we're looking at today to show them scriptures teaching on elders who oversee you because they can actually see you. They actually can know you and you can know them. And he would go on to help them find a local church with local leadership who could care for them in their locality. Another key observation from Titus 1.5 is that Elder Titus is the one to appoint elders. We see in this text that elders appoint elders. Democratic political values were not part of the early church, nor are they to be today. 1 Timothy 5.17 also makes this clear by stating, let the elders who rule well, not let the elders who are ruled well. Put another way, it's not the carriage that leads the horse. And we all know that a carriage is better let, not only when it has the horse in the right place, but when there's more than one horse. Consider the benefits of a plurality of elders. It provides a plurality of men with a plurality of spiritual gifts. No one man has all of the gifts, nor can one man do everything. And every man needs other men with the gifts that God has given them. It's how a body works, one body with many members. Multiplied leadership with multiplied gifts provides the church with greater care for the various facets of the work of life-encompassing ministry. Now, while all of the shepherds are involved in overseeing all of the church, some of them are more gifted in doing specific 
things. That's why you'll have one elder shepherd that's more gifted and focused on teaching or another in counseling or another in personal shepherding care or another in children's ministry and the, the variety of things that are involved in a church's ministry life. God's varied elder gifts display his varied grace for all of life. Another benefit of uh, plurality of elders is they get to share a collective knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of God's word and the application of it. Where one man might not know something, another does. Where one man lacks knowing how to respond to a situation, another does. Where one man needs help thinking through something, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Another benefit of a plurality of elders is that a congregation doesn't rise or fall on one man. A congregation doesn't fall apart when one elder is out of town for a little while. A church with qualified, engaged elders is a blessed church. It's evidence of Jesus' love and care for his people. Another benefit of a plurality of elders is that the elders themselves are shepherded. Elders need shepherds too. They also are Jesus's sheep. And Jesus and his wives love blesses elders with elders to teach them and guide them also. Consider these words from Albert Martin in his pastoral theology here. He writes, you and your fellow elders must take seriously the responsibility to be examples to the flock. You should consciously seek to be standard bearers of how believers, despite all the potential for the disruption of interpersonal relationships, can maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. The congregation is watching you. Do not disappoint them. If you are functioning with genuine parity, you will all openly express your thinking on matters where you may not have immediate or even eventual agreement on every issue that comes up for consideration. In such situations, it is crucial that you be transparent with each other, quick to confess any sinful edginess in the way you have expressed your opinion or have differed with your fellow elders. Elders need shepherds. And they are shepherds to one another. And that's a benefit to the church. A plurality of local elders over a local church is a conduit of Jesus' gracious shepherd care for his people. They are a grace gift which shows Jesus' love for his people through real flesh and blood relationship. But what does this gift look like? How do you recognize a legitimate elder gift versus some odd white elephant gift that is maybe a gift? What does an elder look like? I can remember going on a short-term ministry trip to Albania and sending pictures of the team that was going to serve these people so that they would know who they were picking up from the airport they would have a portrait of us so that they could recognize who it was that was going to come and serve them. 
God has not left us without a portrait of an elder in Scripture so the existing church elders can make sure they pick up the right guy from the airport whom God has sent to serve them. To see that, you can turn to 1 Timothy 3 in your Bibles. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In Titus 1 that we just came from and in 1 Timothy 3, God's instruction for church leadership qualifications is laid out. We see an elder portrait here. I'll read this text to you. So the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Here in 1 Timothy 3, we see elder qualifications, which give a portrait of what an elder looks like. And what an elder looks like is an example for all of the church to follow. So while we consider the portrait of elders here, consider also where you might be able to mature in your own Christian walk as you are to follow the examples of elders who are supposed to be what we see in this portrait. So what does the elder portrait laid out in scripture look like? One, he is called by God. He desires the work, not the position. He is humble and has an obvious passion to, shepherds, to shepherd God's people. He is willing, eager, and an example. Two, he is above reproach. This is the overall qualification which all the others fall under. His life is above reproach in Christian character and conduct. He demonstrates a high morality. He does not live in a way that would discredit the faith. Three, he is a one-woman man. He is a man and not a woman. This qualification alone discredits the concept of women pastors. Just before writing this elder qualification, Paul wrote, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. And he based this not on cultural order, but on creation order. As he goes on to write, for it was Adam who was formed first and then Eve. The idea of a one woman man here isn't in concern to his marital status, but to his faithful character. If he is married, he is obviously faithful. He is faithful in public and in private. Four, he is sober-minded. He has good judgment. He is prudent and sensible. He has a track record of making well-thought-out, wise decisions. He is thoughtful, not impulsive. He understands circumstances and thinking through things. Five, he is self-controlled, self-disciplined. 
He has control not only over his thinking, but also his passions. He can say no to food, drink, pleasure. His body is his slave, not his master. He doesn't have addictive behavior, but practices restraint. He is an example of self-control in diet, exercise, and use of time. You see how Paul addressed this with Timothy when, with his diet. He said, take a little wine for your stomach. Or with exercise, he says, there is some value in bodily training or the use of his time. You know, redeem the time for the days are evil. Six, and a part of the portrait of an elder. He is respectable and responsible. He has qualities that evoke admiration or regard. His yes means yes and his no means no. He can be counted on to do the right thing. Seven, he is hospitable. So we've learned previous, this word means stranger love. He loves, helps, and encourages, and even gives of his own assets to strangers. He makes strangers feel at home. Eight, he is skilled in teaching, encouraging, and defending sound doctrine. He has more than just potential to do this, he is able to do this. He is a trained man who can train other men. He knows the Bible and is able to teach. He is able to defend the Christian faith. He has the capacity to spot error when he sees it because he has a firm hold on the truth. He is sure of the truth. He has a good grasp of truth. Nine, he is not enslaved to alcohol or any substance. His character is not compromised by unlawful use of alcohol or any substance. Ten, he is not violent but gentle. He is not a bully but a gentleman. He is equitable, forbearing, kind. He is a Christian statesman. He has a long fuse and is emotionally stable. People feel safe with him, not intimidated. No church member should ever fear wrath from an elder. 11, he is not quarrelsome with his fist or his words because he trusts in God to right wrongs. He is a peacemaker. He's a uniter and not a divider. He uses his wrenches to fix things, not to throw into things. He is not surrounded by drama. 12, he is not a lover of money. He's not materialistic. He lacks affection for money, wealth, or things. His lifestyle is that of generosity rather than greed. 13, he is a good leader at home. If he has a family, he leads them and cares for them. Not that he has a perfect home, but he has a well-led home. He displays a balance of grace and strength. 14, if he has children, they display submissiveness and faithfulness. No father is responsible for his children's salvation. God alone is. The focus here is on assessing a man's leadership ability, not his children's salvation. If he has children, whether they be believers or not, they respect him. They follow him because he's respectable and he leads his home well. 
Nobody can charge his children with being disorderly because they are well led. 15. He is not a new convert. He is spiritually mature and experienced in living for Christ. He has been a Christian for a while and is rich in Christian experience. He isn't prone to pride and unable to sympathize with suffering or tempted saints. He has had his own fair share of suffering and temptation, which he has struggled through and been humbled by. He isn't self-serving. He is not self-interested or self-absorbed. The world does not revolve around him. It revolves around serving others. 16. He is well thought of by outsiders. He has a good reputation. He has a good name. Among unbelievers for decency, respectability, and trustworthiness. 17. He is a lover of good or a lover of virtue. He is motivated by noble and beneficial acts. He is passionate about doing things that benefit others. 18. He is concerned about what is upright and just. He is concerned about treating people fairly and doing right by them. He encourages upright behavior with his words and his deeds. He pays attention to the needs of those around him. 19. He is holy, set apart to serve God. He has a passionate hunger for God. He doesn't have to tell you that he is spiritual. He is not edgy. He's not trendy. He's not a culture warrior. He is more God-motivated than culture-motivated. He has a passion for holiness. 20. He is recognized by the elders who would appoint him. And those elders make sure he is the man whom God has appointed. And they would rather be slow than sorry. They make sure that there is a shared theological agreement and philosophy of ministry. 21. He is identified prayerfully, examined carefully, required firmly, and affirmed gratefully. Elders are a gift from Jesus Christ. And the portrait of an elder given in Scripture isn't merely an ideal, it is the standard, which you see in 1 Timothy 3, 2, where Paul clearly states, he must be, not ideally he will be. Elder qualifications in Scripture are not the ideal, they are the standard. As John MacArthur states, Elders are not chosen on the basis of their knowledge of the business world, their financial ability, their prominence, or even their innate ability to be leaders. They are chosen because God has called and prepared them for the leadership of the church. The men whom God selects will meet the qualifications. God has given us a picture of who we're picking up from the airport before we get there. And when we see them, we can rejoice and say, we got one. Hop in the car, we're taking you to the pasture, Mr. Shepherd. Now, I know that there are 
men here today who are fearfully considering pursuing the pastoral office. Examining your life under the elder portrait laid out in scripture will be helpful to you, but it will also benefit you to consider unbiblical reasons or improper motivations for pursuing the pastoral office. This list that I'm going to work through of unbiblical reasons or improper motivations for pursuing the pastoral office comes from Albert Martin's pastoral theology book and lectures, which I'll recommend to you and remind you of if you want to listen to those or read them. Uh, We'll work through seven of them with some brief comments from myself. First, improper motivation. Albert Martin addresses is a falsely instructed conscience. Don't think that the only way that you can be useful to God is if you obtain the title of elder, pastor, shepherd, overseer. Don't think of ministry as something that you go into, but rather as mentioned in a recent sermon that ministry is all of life. Two, Second improper motivation, the unwise and unsanctified ambitions of others. Nobody can vote you into being an elder just because they want a warm body to fill the title. God makes elders, not men. Just because men have needs doesn't mean that you're the man to meet those needs. Needs do not equal calling. God makes shepherds not needs, not men. You must be above reproach. You can't circumvent the elder qualifications of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, 1 Peter 5. Also, as we've seen in 1 Timothy 3, the text says you must be, not you might be, could be, or want to be, but you must be those things. Third, improper motivation, an unbalanced and unbiblical concept of spirituality. Being an elder will not make you more spiritual. Exercising speaking gifts doesn't have more glory than serving gifts, but it does receive a greater judgment. Thus it is written in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. A man does not pursue eldership because he wants to be well thought of. Rather, he is recognized because he is already well thought of, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Fourth improper motivation, an inaccurate self-assessment. Don't assess yourself in front of the funhouse mirror of your own deceitful heart. (laughs) Ask those who care for your soul and know you best to examine your life and to examine your knowledge of God's word. Do your shepherds think that God is building you into a shepherd? Don't fail to recognize that though you may have a desire to lead, If nobody is following you, you are not leading. 
you also must be able to teach. You need to be able to feed the sheep God's word and not just your own musing. As John Calvin writes, let us also bear in mind the definition given of the word, for the flock of Christ cannot be fed except with pure doctrine, which is alone our spiritual food. Hence, pastors are not mute hypocrites, nor those who spread their own figments, which, like deadly poison, destroy the souls of men. Fifth and proper motivation is a craving for personal identity. Don't pursue the pastoral office because you want to be recognized or admired. If you're more concerned about your image than being in his image, you need to be led to the cross to be crucified with him before you can live with him. Sixth improper motivation is underestimating pastoral responsibilities. Soberly consider what you will be involved in functioning as an elder within the church watching over the souls of Jesus' sheep as those who will have to give an account to him as it says in Hebrews 13, 17. Seventh and last improper motivation is an unmortified lust for personal gain. Don't pursue eldership because of the pressure of parents, pastors, or any other person. Your motivation must not be to seek to have authority or to get attention or to have influence or even for money. You must be crucified to such lust of the world. Edmund Clowney, from his book Called to the Ministry, writes how a prospective elder should think. Quote, Brethren, I want the standard of the word of God to be applied to me as a faceless man. I do not care how many of you love me and think I am a nice guy. That is irrelevant. The issue is this, is Christ forming me to be a gift to his church? I want you to look at the portrait of what God says one of his gifts will look like as found in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, Acts 20, and 1 Peter 5, and in deductions from other passages regarding the pattern of Jesus as the true and great shepherd of his sheep. I want you to continually compare me to that portrait if what you discern me to be in graces and gifts does not match the portrait, please have the spiritual integrity to tell me so that I may find a sphere of honorable employment by which I can provide for myself and my family, glorify God in that calling, support the work of the church, and find my sphere of usefulness in the body of Christ. End quote. The current elders are praying for the future elders of FCF. And may God always provide faithful elder pastor, shepherd, overseers for this congregation. There is here a legacy of faithful men who have trained other faithful men 
who will train other faithful men, who will train other faithful men to continue to shepherd this flock. And not all of them have been locals. Going back to 1 Peter 5 and verse 1, one of the things we observe in this text that elders benefit from elders that extend beyond their local ministry. First Peter 5, you see Peter as an elder exhorting fellow elders at a distance from him. He's writing to elders in Asia Minor as an extension of his own ministry. Now, while church leaders are independent in their local governance, they are benefited by the church universal, both militant and triumphant. Concerning the church militant, that's those who are in battle today, believers who are alive, I think about the fellowship that I have with other pastors in the immediate area, as well as those at a further distance who have discipled me and trained myself throughout my life. I'm an extension of their shepherding and discipleship ministry. All elders ought to be thankful and to seek the benefit of other pastors, which God has placed around them in their lives, other pastors who are waging the good war in other places with them. Concerning the church triumphant, that's believers who are now with the Lord. They've gone from the land of the dying to the land of the living. Elders also have fellowship with other elders who have gone before them throughout history. We are benefited by and stewards of what has been handed down to us by apostles like Peter, by works of men like William Tyndale, which I've mentioned previous, or uh, from John Calvin, as I've quoted in this sermon. We also are benefited by and the stewards of past creeds and confessions that have been handed down. I benefit every week from elders that are living or in glory that I've never met in my life through their ministry, through books that they've written. God has not only gifted us with his spirit and the scriptures, he has also gifted us with his servants who help us learn the scripture through common fellowship in the same spirit. You doubtless benefit from this when you check the study notes in your study Bible. When you are there reading like the Ethiopian eunuch and asking, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? And then it is as if Philip the evangelist is transported right into your very presence as you read the study note in your MacArthur study Bible. There's the answer. Thank you, Philip. Praise God for all the unique gifts he has given to us throughout church history, throughout the world which we can benefit from and be strengthened by today. There is also something to be said and observing that as Peter is writing to these elders, he's writing as a fellow elder. He has a relationship with these men. There's something to recognize about the impact of relational 
ministry. As one of my previous pastors and professors taught me, the force of positional authority is not as impactful as relational ministry. In the class where I was asked to consider that statement, I was also asked this. You know, who, had, who has had the greatest impact on your life? As I thought about that, I wrote down the name of a man. And then he asked the next question. Well, why? Why did that, that man have such an impact on your life? And I wrote down his Christ-like example and commitment to God's word. He then asked the question, well, who is somebody who has failed to impact you when they could have and should have? I wrote down uh, the name of a man and then answered the question, why? why? Why was it that that man who could have and should have had an impact on my life didn't? It was because he didn't know the Bible well and he didn't really care to either and he largely just lived for himself. The man who had the most impact on my life was one that I had a relationship with. I could see his commitment to God's word and how he sought to live by it. The other man who could have had a great impact lacked that commitment to God's word and living by it. Impactful influence through relationship rather than mere position does not only apply from elder to congregants, shepherds to sheep, but in every sphere of life where God has given you influence in any in every relationship, whether you be single or married, a parent, an employee, a family member, a sibling, or a neighbor, your knowledge of God's word and your example of living by it in relationship with other people will always have more impact than just trying to pull rank on them. Just think about on the other end of you following somebody and how much easier it is to follow somebody that you know is for you and not just in charge of you. I am thankful for the relational influence on my own life from my fellow elders who are fellow testifiers of the sufferings of Christ, which brings us to our last point about what elders are. Elders are witnesses of Christ's suffering and partakers of his glory, as we read in 1 Peter 5.1. Yes, it is true that Peter did witness with his own eyes the sufferings of Christ, but his aim here is to use the word witness as more than that. A witness is somebody who testifies, one who testifies to the sufferings of Christ. Peter writes to fellow elders who are fellow testifiers of the sufferings of Christ. They proclaim him together. They live him together. It's another way of saying, we preach Christ crucified. We testify to Christ's suffering in the place of sinners for their salvation, their sanctification, and glorification. And this kind of pastoral testimony is crucial amidst the church suffering in the world, as is the context of 
1 Peter and is the context of our life this very day. The sheep need shepherds who will preach not only the sufferings of Christ, but the glories of Christ, and to partake in both of those things together in relationship. This sort of relationship reminds the church that Christ crucified is our message. Christ crucified is our motivation. Christ crucified is our mission. We seek that men be reconciled to Christ. And this is not something that's just theoretical. It's practical, as Paul lays out in his own philosophy of ministry in Colossians 1.28, where he writes, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Peter exhorts his fellow elders as fellow testifiers, not only to Christ's sufferings, but also to Christ's glory as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. They not only fellowship as elders in the suffering of Christ, but also in his glory. This is a glory that is for today and tomorrow. It's for the present and the future. It's now and to come. What is the glory that Peter is referring to here? It is a display of the attributes and activities of God. The glory of God is his attributes and activities, who he is and what he does. Well, how do elders partake in the display of the attributes and the activities of God? Well, think about it. Jesus is a shepherd. Who shepherds? Jesus is a shepherd. That's an attribute. Jesus shepherds. That's an activity. Since Jesus is a shepherd who is, is a shepherd who shepherds his flock, shepherds, his under shepherds, they display him by shepherding the flock as shepherds. God displays this attribute and carries out this activity through elders who are spiritually mature grace gifts given in plurality to the church. Elders are men who always have one eye on Christ's suffering and another on his glory. Every generation thinks that they're the last generation. But instead of thinking we might be the last generation, we ought to think about future generations, just as Peter did almost 2,000 years ago now. Future generations who fellowship with the legacy of theology and bold, confident obedience, living in the fear of the Lord. Christian worldview is multi-generational. We don't say to the next generation, well, I'm going to be gone, and you young ones are just going to have to deal with that mess yourselves. Elders shepherd the flock among them, every generation among them, with a mind toward the generation beyond them. Elders keep an eye on 
present suffering and the glory to come. So as it is written in 1 Peter 5.1, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Next week, Lord willing, we will further consider what elders do. Let's close in praying together as the music team comes forward. Jesus, you are the good shepherd. You entered in to this world in human flesh and you shed your blood for our souls. You laid down your life for us and you have graciously called real flesh and blood shepherds to be over us even today men who would also lay down their lives for your sheep we pray that you would maintain your shepherds in holiness helping them to keep a close watch over their life and the teaching to always be growing in holiness always growing in the knowledge of your will and the skill of living it out before your people. Give us, O oh Lord, faithful examples of how to live for you to the glory of your name through the elder, pastor, shepherd, overseers that you have given us as a picture of your grace. Your name be praised and glorified to the ends of the earth forever. Amen.